Welcome to Feels and Variations. My name is Grace. And my name's Alex. What we do is break down your favorite, well, our favorite pieces of music. And then we analyze it, looking at the history and typical interpretations, and then we reinterpret the piece. So um, here we are in our first episode. Let's do some introductions. Uh, Grace? Yes, I am an acupuncturist based in the Maryland slash DC slash Northern Virginia area. I like to stay busy. I've been playing piano for 20 years now. I also do Irish step dancing, indoor rock climbing, the occasional jog, and once in a blue moon, I play percussion. Funny thing about that, I took a five-year hiatus from orchestral percussion, and then an old conductor of mine asked me to play percussion for Sweeney Todd, of all things, this year. Like a fool, I agreed to do it, and then went, oh, right, Sondheim, difficult, and proceeded to obsessively listen to and count and notate the score for the next several weeks. My poor husband, he wished it had been into the woods. So um, I wear a few hats, including private lesson instructor, live sound technician, stage manager, as well as guitarist for wedding ceremonies. I've been playing guitar for about 10 years, piano for maybe three years, and composing for two to three years. I have kind of a weird relationship with the guitar. I've been going on and off with taking breaks with it. I've been slowly getting back into it, but I've been finding more positivity approaching music through other means like electroacoustic improv and the piano. I also make things to the internet wormhole known as the Scavengers Network. Remind me, how do we know each other? I've known you since I was taller than you. And that was like middle school, I think? We, yes. I've known you since I was nine. No, but that's the word I have in my head was like fourth fourth grade. Yeah, it was fourth grade. Uh, I'm not going to name drop the teacher, but it was like a reading class, I think. Yeah. But then we stayed connected through choir. Yeah. And then me being a first year senior in choir and then always being out of (laughs) tune. And then (laughs) it's fine. Yeah. And then I see a comment here that I played at your wedding and I played the box shells. Yeah. yeah. We're we're just going to skip ahead. Okay. That's fine. So today we're talking about, I'm going to do that again without hitting my phone on the table. So today we're talking about the prelude in C from the well-tempered clavier composed by Beach. Um, Can you tell us a bit about it, Grace? Uh, Yes, the Beach. The well-tempered clavier is a two-book set of pieces that Bach wrote to play with a new tuning for Baroque style, the tempering. So rather than being the old style of tempering, this new well-tempered style of, of tuning made it so that if you played any old scale, it sounded like a normal scale, whereas before accidental sounded kind of odd. So the pianos that we play today are mostly well-tempered, and basically he took each of the keys and wrote a prelude and a fugue for each of those 24 keys twice, hence two books. The clavier is just a sort of catch-all German word meaning keyboard instrument, so harpsichord, organ, piano, etc. Uh, if I can make a quick note about temperament. Yeah, you know more about that than I do. You actually majored in music, I just minored. Well, not... Well, I did major in music, but I I really just find weird stuff on the internet. So while we typically use 12-tone equal temperament today, people still use other tuning systems as well, such as just intonation based on the overtones, equal temperament with a variable amount of pitches, so like 19 tet, 21 tet, and the like. Some examples include Lamont Young, an American composer who uses just intonation, Horse Lords, a minimalist rock band from Baltimore who also uses just intonation, and the American composer Harry Parch, who used scales derived from 43 tones to an octave, but I think he also derived that from just intonation as well. So anyway, why are we talking about it and what is our connection to it? Well, at least for me, it seemed like a great place to start for our first episode because it's copyright free. Yay, classical music. I also have a particular connection with Bach. 
very personal note. When I was just a fetus, my dad was working on his dissertation for his PhD in physics. And I guess that Bach helped him math well. So um, he was listening to Brandenburg concertos basically the whole time I was in utero a lot. And then when I was born, I was just this horrible colicky mess. And it took my parents forever to figure out that the one thing that would console me was Bach. So they... I thought it was <laughs> Botch! They wound up jerry-rigging some speakers Actually, from that's my a good room. band. <laughs> botch. The botchy band. Um, no, botch. botch. Botch is the actual... Uh, yeah, it's an, oh, yeah, Actually, yeah, yeah, it was yeah, yeah. The, uh, the lead guitarist from Minus the Bear. It was a metal band that he was in before. Oh, man. Minus the, I forgot about Minus the Bear. But yeah, so I had speakers under my... They were not Bosch speakers, I don't think. Under my door with the cassette player on the other side. So when it flipped, it wouldn't wake me up because it was the only way that I would sleep. And I slept to it for, and I slept to it for a long time. Yeah, actually I had a similar thing when I was growing up. So it was less of my parents playing music for me, but I kind of picked up this habit of like listening to music as I would fall asleep. So mm-hmm. I would fall asleep with my headphones on and then get wrapped up in my headphones. And Eek. then my parents would have to like untangle me because they no. check on me before they went to bed and say, Oh shit, he's like suffocating. Even though I yeah. wasn't. Yeah. So, um, do you have any interesting bits of information about the uh, prelude in C? Oh, man. So as a pianist, I've always looked at preludes as like a fun little ditty, something pretty and fun mm-hmm. before the nightmare of the fugue to come, mm-hmm. which is why it's a prelude. It's what comes first. So fugues are pieces with multiple melodic lines that occur simultaneously. And there's an idea that's introduced by one voice and then repeated in another and another and sometimes up to two more. Mm-hmm. The craziest ones have five voices. The one in C major from the first book, the first fugue in C major is a four voice fugue. And uh. I don't know it very well, but you might hear it in the background here. A tiny bit of me stumbling through it. I had a piano teacher give me an assignment uh, over one summer, like, hey, it's your summer off. Why don't you sight read one prelude and one fugue every day? It was the worst two months. I I can. uh, So I've been recently getting into piano and I have enough trouble like sight reading a piece with like an arpeggiation in the left hand, like a melody in the right hand. So like I... Mm I, uh, I mean, with guitar, it's a little different, but I've always had trouble with Bach on guitar. So yeah, maybe yeah, that's yeah. just, yeah. Yeah. The, the whole, like, you have no sustain pedal and you have to leave your fingers down. Yep. Kind of like with, like, early pianos and stuff. But are there any, like, modern reinterpretations of the piece? Yeah. So one example, I think it comes from, like, 73, 1973. Uh, this prelude was sort of the backdrop for a piece called Alla Telech, which is by an Israeli pop artist named Shlomo Gronich. Uh, mm-hmm. The entire prelude is played twice. The interpretation is somewhat top-heavy, so it's really that like fifth that keeps ringing out. Um, and the artist adds passing tones to that upper melody to create a new melody uh, set to uh, words. And the rest mm-hmm. is very popular Israeli music history. So did they ever go into why they decided to use the prelude in C as the backdrop for this piece? I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. So, well, I, I asked this because with the music theory class that I took, there was this, I, I remember this very specific segment about pop composers from like the 70s and 80s taking very kind of romantic chord progressions. I think mm. it was like a Tony Bennett song where he took a Chopin progression. Yeah. So I don't know if there's... Yeah, I mean, it's such it's such a round, circular set of chord progressions is the way that I experience it. It's so smooth. And so it's interesting that, yeah, he plays it twice and it just comes back around again. Yeah. My dad always says that Bach was the first jazz musician mm-hmm. and I don't disagree. 
We'll actually get to that a little later. Yeah. So, and you'd also mention it's very popular Israeli music history. So what makes it so important in Israeli music history? I mean, Shlomo Groni, who's like the John Lennon of Israel. So the piece mm-hmm. is actually a love song. Um, it translates to English as Don't Go. All I know is my mother-in-law loves this prelude because of Shlomo Groni. That's the mm-hmm. only reason that she really knows it. So yeah. when she took piano as an adult, she was like, I have to learn this prelude because Shlomo Groni used it. You know. Um, mm-hmm. So I think he's just a really big figure in terms of Israeli music. And I mean, Israel as a state is so young. Anything that comes to the forefront as Israeli becomes really important to the people as a whole. So, so what is it about the harmonic structure of this piece that keeps drawing us in over the ages? You know, it was popular in Baroque times and then popular again as recently as the 70s. And now we're talking about it today. So this analysis was taken from Andrew Hennington at andrewhennington.wordpress.com. And other notes were taken from Kimiko Ishizaka from thewelltemperedclavier.org. Thank you, Andrew and Kimiko. And I apologize for butchering any names. So... Andrew Hennington states that the prelude, which acts as the opening to book one of the well-tempered clavier, is both wonderfully classical in its harmonic richness and wonderfully modern in its repetitive simplicity. Ishizaka also mentions that it is an almost ironic outlier in the collection of polyphonic works, given that it's not immediately polyphonic and it's devoid of any theme, but like Gracie mentioned before, it's a prelude to fugues and other things. Right, it's it's just a foreshadowing of... The things to come. This is what you're going to deal with. So just, yeah. So on some other notes about the piece, Hennington mentions that it is notable for its smoothness of its voice leading and the tension built throughout its lengthy coda. Um, The coda is about half the length of the piece itself. For the most part, the voices tend to move by no more than a step, maybe at most a third. And this is usually found in writing for accompaniment, such as string sections or choirs to allow the section to contribute harmonically, but not poke out in the foreground, but they can still contribute harmonically. This also strengthens the sense of resolution throughout the piece as phrases end with more and more authentic cadences as the piece progresses. So I guess going back to what you had mentioned about the piece being used as the background for the Israeli pop piece, like the structure of the piece like really lends itself to that because it is like a fancy accompaniment. Right. And it's very like incrementally building upon itself. Yeah. So um, we're going to break this piece down into three phrases and a coda. So if you could take your handy dandy pen or pencil, phrase one is a regular four measure phrase, which introduces the arpeggiation and establishes the key. Harmonically, we start with a tonic C major chord, move to a D minor over C chord, slide down to a G7 over B, then resolve to a C major chord using an imperfect authentic cadence. This means that one of the chords in the 5 to 1 cadence, the G to C cadence, is inverted, or that one of the chords does not have the root in the bass. In this case, the G chord has a B in the bass, which then slides right up to C. Phrase 2 is a 7 measure phrase, which can be split into two subphrases of 4 and 3 measures. The first subphrase shifts the key to G major temporarily with a 2, 5, 1. You find two 5, 1s in jazz everywhere it's one of the major vehicles for progressing through a piece in the key of g this gives us an a minor over c d7 over c and g over b keep in mind that we have these chords in inversion the second phrase starts off with a c over b chord which could be either seen as a slight return to c major because we go from a g to a b i mean a g chord to a c chord or the c chord is just acting as the four chord in the new key wow this is really getting into theory stuff yeah Heady. Very heady. Then we repeat the 2-5-1, A minor, D7, and G major, but those are now in the root position. So we have the 2-5-1 and G major repeating, but the second time around it has a stronger resolution because the roots are in the bass. 
but we have not yet gotten a perfect authentic cadence because the resolving chord does not end with a tonic in the melody, so we're gradually getting stronger and stronger resolutions. Phrase three is an eight bar phrase that is evenly divisible into two four bar sub phrases. Hennington states that this is essentially the conclusion of the prelude, so we could stop here, but I'm gonna keep going. Also of note, he states that measures 16 to 19 are an imitation of, the, of measures nine to 11 in the second phrase. And this can be seen in the use of the four chord over its major seventh, progressing to a tonic two, five, one. So in context, earlier we get it in the key of G with the C over B going into A minor seven, then D seven into G seven. Later on, we see it imitated with F major over E into a D minor seven, then G seven into C. So the chord tones in the bass, as well as the intervals in the top voice are the same. And this is the strongest tonic resolution we have in the piece so far, given that we're ending with the roots in the bass in the tonic key, but we still haven't gotten the tonic notes in the top melody. So I'm almost done. I swear, don't stop listening. <laughs> so the coda is 16 measures longer. I swear we're almost done. So we start by modulating to the key of F major. I feel like I'm, oh, what's Charlie Day in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, like talking about the person that doesn't exist because he can't deliver mail to that person. And he has like the, the pins and articles and mail going all around his room. And I feel like I'm like kind of running all around my room, like pointing at stuff and just like losing my mind. So oh, it's a little, it's a little like the uh, serial killer with the strings and pins. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Ah, yes, it's all so, coming back to the tonic. Now, but instead of going to the tonic, we're modulating to the key of F. But not. Um, the subdominant key of C major, and then we slide between some passing diminished chords. And this is considered the subdominant prolongation, since the feeling of being in the subdominant is, well, prolonged. Then we move to the dominant prolongation, where we get a series of chords over a dominant pedal, so we have a bunch of chords over G, over the note G. Mm -hmm. So they eventually resolve not nicely into a C tonic chord, not well, not a tonic C chord, but a dominant C chord, which then resolves into an F chord again. That F chord is whack when you hear it. It's like, why? Why is this yeah, here? It's like we're like in the universe of C major. We know we're in C major, but we're not yet in C major. So no. it's like we resolve, but we don't resolve. Quick detour to the fourth. Eventually, yes. But that F over C progresses to a G7 over C chord, which is screaming that we're going to resolve into C when we eventually resolve into a tonic C major chord. So while we don't get that clean dominant to tonic resolution right at the end, we do get it spread out. So the dominant prolongation resolves from a G bass to a C bass. And the catch though is that the resolution is also modulating to the new key of F, which eventually catches up at the end. And I do feel this is kind of classic Bach because as much as he sets us up for all of the rules that we follow in terms of like chordal structure and progression. He also is the first to break them. Yeah. I don't have anything prepped to like compare to like contemporary pieces at the time, but I mean, we had gone back to finding a lot of jazz and Bach. There was this book I got on linear harmony. So ideas on improvising, but following the outlines of a chord. And mm -hmm. the first example it gave was from, I think the fourth invention yeah. Or it's like the invention in D minor. So, yes, exactly. Yeah, I played that. Do you like making fun of really, really bad ghost hunting shows? There's one in particular we enjoy making fun of. It's called Ghost Adventures, and it includes things such as bad fashion sense, grown men yelling at nothing, outrageously large belt buckles, too much hair gel, and unfortunately, a lot of really cringy, painful, and socially unaware stuff, too. I'm Cassie. And I'm Max. We're the hosts of Insanely Haunted, the show where we watch and review every episode of Ghost Adventures. Find Insanely Haunted for free wherever you get your podcasts.
Now we've talked about the piece and I've done a diatribe analyzing it. Grace, can you please save us from me talking and talk about <laughs> historical interpretations about the piece? Yeah, sure. So the first thing that comes to mind when I think about Bach and interpretations is Glenn Gould. Glenn Gould was especially renowned for interpretations of Bach's keyboard music. Listening to Gould, especially recordings of the fugues, you can hear him humming along. Humming? Really? Yeah, and like he'll pick the weirdest line to hum, the one that you would forget exists except that he's humming it. It's particularly wild that he did this because he was somewhat obsessive about his recordings. Uh, my piano teacher used to have a movie night for her students where we would watch a biographic film about Glenn Gould and eat a lot of pizza. I recall that mm -hmm. he stopped performing live at some point because he was such a perfectionist. He would actually record himself over and over and over and splice together the most perfect interpretation from all of the recordings. In time, that became his real art form. This might be kind of hypocritical coming from someone who edits both through podcasting and through just the music that I make. But do you find that with a performance like that, a part of the artistry comes through the continuum of the performance from start to end? And by him editing his peach pieces in such a way, and not his peaches, his pieces in such a way. <laughs> gotta get my peaches just right. Gotta get, gotta get the peaches just right. So, um, but by editing his pieces like that, do you think a part of the artistry is lost? So I will say as a pianist, it's really frustrating to be like, wow, here's this wonderful standard and it's impossible. It's like he set the bar at something that is literally unattainable. So trying yeah. to become like the best player of Bach that I can be and looking at Gould, I'm like, yeah, but you know, I can't ever rise to that because I'm not obsessing over it with like a little razor and uh, like, drug paraphernalia looking whole cut it and melt it together and ooh, what are we doing you know because it yeah. was it's just like a level that i don't think anybody can really aspire to and stay sane and you know to be honest i don't think he did a lot from that like biographic film was like oh and he's popping pills again oh and he hasn't left his house for months oh nice it's just him and his beagle like that was his life as far as that film portrayed it. And on, unfortunately yeah. this was like, I think I watched this when I was in high school. Like, I don't remember the name of the film anymore. I could probably do some digging and find it. Um, but I'm not sure how much was dramatic and how much was accurate, but you could speculate yeah. that it was not an easy life to, to set the bar that high. And so as a pianist, yeah, it's like, that's nice, Gould. I wish I could do that, but I can't, so I won't. I'm just gonna do my own thing. Yeah, certainly. I also wonder, so music isn't, or at least I don't think music should be treated as a sport. If you're making art in that kind of vein and you're not following by those same rules of it all being a consistent thing, do you wonder if his musical legacy should have kind of an asterisk next to it? Not like he's like on steroids with his music, but it's not kind but of a is. continuum of a performance. Yeah. No, I mean, I definitely have that asterisk in my head and I don't know that I've labeled it that way, but it's true. Like, that's wonderful. That's really, really cool. I'm glad somebody did that. And if he couldn't perform it once the way that he wanted it to sound, then mm -hmm. none of us have any hope. Yeah. So basically, thanks, Glenn, but off Glenn. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> So would you consider him your uh, Gould standard? He is definitely the Gould standard, indeed, yes. But it's such such a sort of obsessive, like, the way that he interprets things. It, this particular piece comes across a little clipped in the right hand, which is sort of back to that 
I guess, unwritten rule of piano where like if you're playing Baroque music, you play it exactly as written because the instruments that they had, they couldn't use a sustain pedal and just kind of cheat their way through it like I do in Debussy and Chopin and, to be honest, Bach. But yeah, so I mean, he his interpretation of this the left hand is is held the way that it's written, and then the right hand is very broken. And when he decides to bring something out, he does it by playing it just a little bit more legato. Um, and I have to wonder, yeah. like, how many of those notes he's just spliced exactly where he wants them and how many he actually attacked when you hear it. Yeah. It'd be interesting looking at the files. I, I imagine they didn't have digital recording or, like, really good digital recording at that point. So I wonder no. if a lot of it was like tape, like tape yes. recording. So it'd be interesting seeing the the spliced tape recordings all together and seeing, okay, yeah. so then he wanted to bring that out specifically. So then he cut right before that and then just started right there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's as far as we know, that's what he did just in terms of the time that he was doing this. Like that's yeah. what technology was available to him. Literally cut it with a razor and then melt it back together again or tape it back together again. It's just wild, yeah. like the level of, of technical obsession that he must have had with it. But what sort of results is that every single repetition of notes, he doesn't ever have the same way again. So whereas yeah. the rest of us would be like, oh, that sounds nice. Let's do that again. That was fun. Ooh, there it is again. It's, for him, it's like, I already did that. Well, how am I going to do it differently this time? And it comes across that way. At a certain point, you just kind of can't do it differently anymore. Like no. there are so many different combinations, whether it's combinations of instruments, combinations of ideas, or just different ways you can interpret something. Right. I think that's kind of how we wind up with like modern composing where it is right now. Like my dad calls it yeah. like the era of the drunk, drunken octopus, because it's like, we're running out of things that are different and everyone will just be like, Oh, I need to do something different. Let's completely left field and like, in a different temperament and you know all of that and okay well it's certainly new <laughs> i mean that there's there's nothing necessarily wrong with that i guess no. i mean that more in the way of obsessive creative pause yeah with me it's like i'm not sure what to do that's different how am I going to make this stand out? Well, that's something, that's why I like to look at Andre Schiff too, mm -hmm. because like, whereas Gould has this like very true to the time keyboard instrument style, Schiff kind of leans into a more modern interpretation of Bach where he'll, he'll add a little bit more space to things yeah. to bring them out. So whenever you have one of those dissonances and you're waiting for it to resolve, he'll just add like a fraction of a second of extra time for you to linger on that dissonance and it makes a world of difference. Gould is just like a little metronome and he just goes and then the piece is over. Like there's a slight retardando at the end, but it's just very straight, very straight. Yeah. Yeah. So I really, I like Schiff's way. So then why interpret it so differently? So like what kind of meaning do these interpretations give us? Like I was saying, there's certain rules and laws of playing piano that we all may bend or break more or less than others. Mm -hmm. um, like, do you play things the way that they're written? Or do you yes. take the path less traveled and change no. the articulation <laughs> with Bach? This is, this is particularly muddy because the instruments that we commonly play are so different. Mm -hmm. So if you want to hold a note on a harpsichord, like your SOL, but if you want to hold a note on an organ, you have to hold it down. Um, and so yeah. that's why if you look at the preludes, you look at the fugues, there's this like obsessive Gouldian nature of but that's a half note. You have to hold it. Whereas I'm like, nah, I fingered it wrong. There it goes. Sorry. Not sorry. Yeah. Which 
yeah, been playing for 20 years doesn't make me an expert. No, but you can take liberties. I do. I take You've liberties. You've earned your pin. <laughs> Have I? <laughs> Have you? I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so gold and shift have this sort of different extreme on these. Like I was saying, gold mm-hmm. will avoid a sustain and voice things in almost like a forceful way. It's like he's shouting at you. This is the line I want you to listen to right now. Ignore that one. Look at and this one. And you will one. hum it. And you will hum it. Look at this one. Look at me. Look at me. Whereas shift is a little more subtle and not quite so smack you across the face with the baseline. The baseline is like uh, a sonority happening yep. and then on top of that is this sort of shimmering nature of the uh, treble clef which he'll kind of have this little decrescendo in every phrase mm-hmm. which really is sort of to me it's much more interesting to listen to much as gold is gold is the gold standard I I prefer shift yeah so what I find really intriguing is just how people can pull out all these like descriptions and interpretations of an, of an interpretation or from a performance. So this is a slight digression, but as, well, as you know, my wife rides horses mm-hmm. and hearing her describe the specifics of either riding her horse or watching someone else ride a horse and being able to tell like, okay, so that's wrong with that horse. They're doing this right. The horse is not happy. Then this is happening. It just like blows my mind. I can understand with music like a little more Mm -hmm. being able to listen and tell these sort of things. But I don't know. I always find it interesting when people can like pull out these very specific points about an interpretation or a piece. Well, I feel like there's sort of a a shift that happened in me as a musician around like I don't know, 10 or 12 years into playing where all of a sudden it was like, I had this image, like kind of Gouldian. I had this image in my head of what I wanted it to sound like. And then I became sort of obsessed with how to get that sound out. Mm-hmm. My poor parents, cause I would just play the same phrase over and over again, voicing different things and like trying to get a certain color and like that, that idea of musical color and musical ideal was sort of born once I got to the point where, like, I needed to improve my chops, so to speak, enough to make it speak. Yeah, that makes sense. It's really frustrating to be like, I can hear this, but I can't make it happen. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. I understand that. So with all that in mind, how do you interpret the piece? So like, what do you think about what you're playing? So I definitely kind of flip between gold and shift. And that's why those are the two that I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. So whereas I lean into shift playing with time and sustain, I also do think about dynamics and voicing, I think, in a similar way to how Gould does. So sometimes I'll play with an emphasis on the top voice, like shift, and sometimes I'll lean more towards the bass. So my kind of happy medium where I wind up playing, my attention is pulled to whichever voice is moving more. Kind of mm-hmm. like you were talking about, sometimes there's a very, very subtle difference between one chord and the next, and it can be as much as a third or as little as a half step between one measure and the next. Um, So wherever the most interesting change is happening is sort of, that's the line that I'll voice for that phrase. Um, And by phrase, I mean as long as like four measures or five measures. And I guess you've got these phrases sort of mapped out. Like if I I go back and look at it, yeah, that's probably where they are. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, and here at the end of phrase two, that's where it peaks and you think it's over, but no, there's a coda. Yeah. Yeah, so then I guess that peak no matter who you're listening to, it seems to be commonly agreed upon. If you listen to Gould, it's there in his dynamics. If you listen to Schiff, it's there in his spacing and timing. Mm-hmm. And I do both. So I just try to kind of 
bring the best of both worlds. Um, I try not to play in a way that I find harsh, which kind of happens in, in Gould's recording. Sometimes there's this harshness sort of biting voicing, yeah. which I would prefer not to have unless I'm playing, I don't know, Brahms, where it should be. I'm angry or whatever. Yeah, we'll get to that. But yeah, that's, yeah, we'll get, we will definitely get to Brahms. <laughs> but yeah, so no matter what, everybody seems to agree upon the height of the piece. And I think that just comes down to the harmonics themselves. Yeah. So then what, so you said around the second page, what sec, what phrase would that be in? I think you had already mentioned this phrase two, between phrase two and three. I think so. But my music is over there. I think it's 21. Okay, cool. So I find it interesting that you're able to synthesize these two interpretations together, but you're still keeping that common idea of having the emphasis or kind of the turning point of the piece being at that specific measure. Yeah, yeah. I think it really, it carries, again, that sort of universality of harmonic structure. And even through the ages, even though, you know, this was composed so long ago, we all can kind of agree upon like, yeah, that's pretty dope. Yeah. So thank you to all of you for joining us for our first episode of Feels and Variations. While we're still working on our social media presence, if you have any questions, you can contact us a bunch of ways. Um, you can find me on Twitter at French at Music. And you can find me on Instagram at, let's see, let's go with my professional, Three Treasures Wellness. It's all spelled out. Send us a message if you have any thoughts about the Prelude in C. Do you know of any other interpretations? How do you interpret it? Do you have any suggestions for the next episode? Let us know. So thanks again for joining us for Feels and Variations. We vary it so you don't have to. I don't know. Is that okay? That's it's an <laughs> improvised sign off. <laughs>